Thank you, David, Stephanie, worship team. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Jesus, you are beautiful. Jesus, you are wonderful. Jesus, you are powerful. We are here because of you, Jesus. We just want to give you all the praise and all the glory. We pray you would fill us this morning with your spirit as we look into your word. Give us understanding. Open our eyes to see your truth. Soften our hearts that we might be not only hearers, but doers of your word. We just pray that you would bless our time together as we look into your miraculous work that you accomplished that resurrection day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He is risen. Amen. If you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15 and have that open, we're going to look at the whole chapter. We're not going to read it in, in order, but we're going to be looking at it this morning in some detail. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus began to teach from what we call the Old Testament. If you were to open your Bible to where the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins, you'd have about three-quarters of it in your left hand. That's what we call the Old Testament today. It's 39 books, the most recent of which was written about 400 years before Jesus was born. Most of them, as we know, were written much earlier, as far back as at least 1,000 years before even that. Though his source material was old, Jesus' teaching was radical. He taught with an authority like none other. He claimed that these old books, these old books were about him. He claimed that, that he came to accomplish what these books said was God's plan for the future. He shocked crowds, claiming to be the one, uh, sorry, claiming to be one with the God who authored these plans. But even more than this, Jesus claimed to be God himself, come down from heaven to rescue God's people and bring them to heaven to live forever with him. Had he been a mere man, pretty much, pretty much most of what he said would have been blasphemy, a direct insult to God. If you know the story, you know that most of the religious teachers and leaders of the day believed that Jesus was just that, just a mere man. So they accused him and they convicted him of blasphemy. And back in the day, the penalty for blasphemy was death. And these religious teachers and leaders wanted to make sure that Jesus' fledgling new take on the old teachings didn't catch on. So, leveraging their political connections and doing a little community organizing, they arranged for Jesus' sudden and brutal execution. And that as they say, should have been the end of that. But here's the thing, it wasn't. 2,000 years later, there are still people gathering on this day, really gathering the first day of every week, in commemoration of what happened the third day after Jesus was executed. 
And as we know what happened, he came back to life. He rose from the grave. Now that's not something you see every day. In fact, I think it's fair to say that none of us has ever seen something quite like that. And when you hear someone claim that something amazing happened, something unlike you or anyone else you know has ever seen before, I think the natural response is skepticism. Jesus' own followers were skeptical. The Bible records that the first reports came back early that Sunday morning that Jesus' body was not in the grave, that there were two men clothed in uh, clothing that flashed like lightning, and that these men had announced, he is not here, but he is risen. And how did Jesus' followers react? We read in Luke 24 that these words appeared as nonsense, and they would not believe them. In fact, the disciple, one of the disciples, Thomas, is so famous for his skepticism, we still call people doubting Thomases when they don't believe what we're telling them. Thomas said famously, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails that they crucified him with and put my finger into the place of the nails, I will not believe that Jesus is alive. But the grave was empty. His body was never found. And within the space of 40 days, his disciples, even Thomas, and hundreds others claimed to have encounters with the risen Christ. Now, 2,000 years later, Many are still asking, is the resurrection for real? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? There are lots of ways we could answer this question. But this morning, I want to look at how one chapter in the Bible answers this question. And more broadly, what this chapter says about resurrection. And see how the Bible answers the question, specifically, how are the dead raised? The 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians comes directly at this question. <clears throat> this book was written about 25 years after Jesus was raised. So pretty recent compared to when Jesus uh, died. It was written by Paul to Jesus' followers in the prominent Greek city of Corinth. Paul, like Jesus, was an itinerant preacher, and he had lived in Corinth for about a year and a half telling the people the news about Jesus. As he writes this letter, he's in what is now uh, modern-day Turkey, spreading the news about Jesus and visiting churches. It's a couple of years since he's left Corinth. And since he's been away, he's heard that there are some in Corinth who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. If you look in verse 12 of that chapter, we read, How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And in verse 35, we find this, But some will say, How are the dead raised? Some of the people in Corinth don't believe. Some have doubts and, and they have questions. And Paul, Paul has answers. How are the dead raised, they want to know. Now that word how, it's kind of a flexible word. It can mean different things depending on how it's used. For example, it can mean by what means, as in you're looking for the cause that resulted in an effect. If I ask you, how did you come to church this morning, you might say, I drove my car. But how can also mean in what condition, as in you're looking for the state that something is in. I could ask you, how did you come to church this morning? You can say, I came in a new outfit 
or I came wearing my Easter bonnet, or I came with a joyful heart. Paul addresses both of these senses of the word how in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. He tells us how, by what means, resurrection happens. And he tells us in what condition resurrection happens. He tells us what it looks like. He explains all this in what I want to call this morning the resurrection miracle chain. The resurrection miracle chain. And if you want to kind of follow along or take notes, there are four, four points to our outline, four links in the resurrection miracle chain. The first link is the miracle of Jesus' resurrection. The second link is the miracle of spiritual resurrection. The third link is the miracle of bodily resurrection. And the fourth link is the miracle of living in the light of the resurrection. I call it a chain because there's a logical progression that connects Jesus' resurrection to meaning, purpose, and hope in our everyday lives. The logic goes like this. Jesus Christ was truly bodily raised from the dead. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we are raised spiritually from death to life. Because we are spiritually raised from death to life, we will one day be bodily raised from death to life. And because we know that one day we will be bodily raised from death to life, we have reason to live a life of meaning. That is, we live for Christ, a life of purpose that is to glorify God, and a life of hope because we know where we're going. So this chain encompasses our understanding of the past, that's namely Jesus' resurrection, Paul's conversion, as we'll talk about. It, it encompasses our understanding of the future, that's namely what happens to us when we die. And it encompasses our understanding of life in the here and now, namely <clears throat> how we can be changed by encountering Jesus and live our life with hope and ultimate meaning. That four-length chain, I'll repeat it again, it's going to be our outline. So we have number one, the miracle of Jesus' resurrection. The miracle of Jesus' resurrection. Number two is the miracle of spiritual resu resurrection. Number three is the miracle of bodily resurrection. And number four is the miracle of living in the light of the resurrection. Before we look at these links, I want to deal with something that may be obvious by this point. I've said the word at least ten times by now, and that word is... Well, I've said a lot of words ten times. <laughs> Starts with an M. Miracle. The word miracle. I'm going to admit right up front <clears throat> that if you just flat don't believe in miracles, if you're going to insist that miracles are impossible, then you're not going to accept or appreciate any of the rest of what I'm going to say. But that doesn't mean I want you to tune me out. I'd still like you to listen and consider what Paul has to say about how the dead are raised and see if maybe God isn't trying to tell you something here. For all of us, believers and skeptics alike, before we launch into the miracle chain, it's important that we define this word, miracle, and talk a little bit about why or, or why not it's reasonable to believe in them. We throw that word around a lot, and, well, we pretty much abuse it, I would say. Nowadays, we say things like, it's a miracle that car didn't hit me. We talk about the miracle Mets. We talk about that bridge being a miracle of modern engineering. I remember in college, and it still kind of bounces around in my head from time to time, there was a song entitled, All I Need is a Miracle. And it was about a, a, it taking a miracle for a guy to make up with a girl that he'd wronged. What we usually mean by that word 
miracle in these phrases. It's an unlikely but fortunate event, an outstanding accomplishment maybe, a wild but happy coincidence that just sort of happened. But that's not what I mean by miracle, and that's not what the Bible means either. When you read in the New Testament the word miracle, it means work of power or wonder or marvel. The root of the word actually is the same uh, root that we get the word dynamite from, so power, work of power. A good working definition would be something like this. A miracle is an extraordinary event that only the power of God could accomplish. That would include things like sweeping back the waters of the sea so that thousands could walk across it on dry land or holding the sun and moon still in the sky for a whole day or having a chariot of fire drawn by horses, horses of fire appearing to take a prophet up to heaven or a dead man coming back to life. These are works of power that only God could do. We call them supernatural because they are beyond the natural course of things. Now, to the skeptic, I understand that supernatural might seem super reasonable. In other words, beyond what is reasonable. There are many voices today that refuse to accept the supernatural. They insist that matter, energy, and time, space are all that exists. And if there's anything else out there that we haven't understood yet, well, the skeptic is confident we'll be able to explain that too without bringing the supernatural into the equation. But here's the thing. I don't think most people have fully appreciated the beauty of the natural world or been properly humbled by its complexity or awed by the sheer magnitude of its scale. Because the more we know about the universe around us, the more wonderful it appears and the larger the question looms, where did this all come from? A few weeks ago, uh, Brother Walter was talking about this. I remember he mentioned black holes as an example of the wonder of creation. And uh, I thought I should set the record straight. He asked me a question on the spot, if you may, may remember. I wanted to let you know that what I said off the top of my head that day was wrong about when black holes were discovered. <clears throat> it turns out that uh, actually Albert Einstein first predicted black holes way back in 1916 with his general theory of relativity. It's hard to imagine, over 100 years ago. It also turns out that it took us that 100 years to actually see one. It turns out uh, April 10th, that was the day before Matt's son was born, right? April 10th, this year, scientists released the first ever pictures of the black hole, of a black hole. One scientist called it uncovering a part of the universe that was off limits to us. The black hole they took a picture of is 55 million light years from Earth. And to take the picture, they used an international uh, team with a network of seven radio telescopes scattered across the globe. They were in North and South America and Europe. The picture they took maybe doesn't look too impressive. I don't know if you've seen it. It's an orange-red asymmetrical donut with a, you guessed it, big black hole in the middle. But from these measurements, they were able to determine the mass of this thing. It's equal to 6.5 billion, with a B, billion suns. That's almost one sun for every person on the Earth. One scientist described it in highly technical terms. He called it a monster. 
I say all that to say this. This universe is so vast. Think of the size of this black hole. I mean, the size of our sun is beyond the limits of our finite minds to comprehend. And this thing is 6.5 billion times as big. And think about the distances involved. Even though this thing is that massive, we need a telescope that's basically the size of the entire planet, Earth, to see it because it's so far away. Where does all this space come from? Where does all this matter come from? Why is it all ordered and understandable to us? Why do the laws of physics that govern it all stay the same day to day and not chaotically change and shift? It all inspires a sense of awe. And that awe is universal. Whether they admit it or not, it's shared by skeptic and believer alike. Now the Bible says that everything came from God. He spoke and it came into existence. It also says that he sustains it. He holds it together, maintains its order by the word of his power. And I would argue that it's perfectly rational to understand that it takes something more vast and more powerful than the universe to be the cause of the universe. Perfectly rational to understand that it takes something outside of time to set time in motion. In other words, it takes something supernatural to be the cause of all that is natural. If there's nothing beyond the natural, where then did, the natu- did nature come from? It's been said that from nothing, nothing comes. But from something, or biblically speaking, someone, with a capital S, from someone, everything can come. And because there is a someone who is supernatural, someone who created time, matter, and space, and authored and upholds the laws of physics that they obey, it is perfectly reasonable that that someone, that God, can step into the universe he's made and controls and, according to his plan and for his own purposes, do whatever it is that he chooses to do. What the king of the universe commands, the universe is constrained to obey. So when the creator calls a creature back from the dead, that creature has no choice but to live. How are the dead raised? by the power of a supernatural God. In other words, it's a miracle. That brings us to the first link in the resurrection miracle chain. The first link in the chain is the miracle of Jesus' resurrection. And this link is the most important link because without it, the the rest of the chain has nothing to hang on. Check out what Paul says in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. This is a bold assertion. If the miracle of Jesus' resurrection is false, Paul is saying, then the rest of what we're going to say here, all that church is about, the whole idea of worship, hope in something beyond this life, all of it is false. It's all a waste of time and resources. But if it's true, then all the wonderful truths and promises are true. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lays the foundation for explaining how the dead are raised by reminding us that Jesus was indeed raised and that all the rest of what he tells us flows out of the truth of Jesus' resurrection. And he offers us proof, proofs that Jesus truly was raised from the dead. There are many proofs that the miracle of Jesus' resurrection occurred, but Paul highlights just two. Number one is prophecy, and number two is eyewitness accounts. 
First, we're going to look at prophecy in verse 4. You can get a lot out of verse 4. Just the second part of verse 4. Paul says, He was raised from the third day according to the Scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The first proof for Paul that Jesus was raised from the dead is prophecy. Or as Paul puts it, the resurrection happened according to the Scriptures. When Paul speaks of the Scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament that we mentioned before, the parts of the left-hand side of your Bible. Though these predated Jesus, many of them speak about him. They tell how a son will be born to a virgin, that that son, though a man, will be mighty God and father of eternity, that this God-man would die to take the punishment that we deserve to absolve us of our guilt before a righteous and just God. And they also tell us that he would rise again. One of the Old Testament prophecies is in the book of Isaiah. That was written about 700 years before Jesus was born. It clearly predicts Jesus' death for our sins. Verse 8 of Isaiah 53 says that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. So Jesus would die. But here's the thing. That same passage speaks about how he will, in the future, divide the prize with the strong because he poured himself out to death. And it also says that he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days. We can also look at Psalm 16, written about a thousand years before Jesus' birth. Psalm 16, verse 10 says that you will not, you, God, will not abandon my soul to Sheol or the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. God, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me, that is, your Holy One, the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. So the scriptures are telling us of a Savior who will die, yet he will not decay in the grave. He will die, but he will live and experience joy at God's right hand forever. For Paul, this is a powerful validation of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were predicted hundreds of years before the historical events. Therefore, Paul argues, these events are of God. Therefore, we can trust that they are true. This line of argumentation would be important to those who believe the Old Testament to be the word of God. They would not easily dismiss, dismiss these connections that we've mentioned, and there were hundreds more connections between the Old Testament descriptions of the Messiah and Jesus who walked the earth. Jesus himself said that the scriptures should be enough evidence. Many of you may recall that he once gave a sermon about a man who begged from his torment in hell that someone be sent back from heaven, back from the dead, to warn his five unbelieving brothers of the wrath to come. The main point of Jesus' sermon is driven home by Abraham, who speaks in, in, uh, in Jesus' story. Abraham from heaven says to this man who's in hell, If they do not listen, that is your unbelieving brothers, do not listen to Moses and the prophets. In other words, if they don't listen to what the scriptures already say, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. According to Jesus, then, the scriptures should be all we need to convince us. That the scriptures predicted Jesus' life, death, and resurrection hundreds of years before it actually happened is evidence that a supernatural power is at work. 
and the supernatural power that inspired the writers of the Old Testament to predict Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the same supernatural power that raised Jesus from the dead. We can also pause here for a moment to note that those scriptures say that Jesus' resurrection will be a miracle, a work of God. Psalm 16 that I just read, it says that God will not allow his Holy One to undergo decay. God will make known to him the path of life. So it's telling us right there that it is God who raised Jesus. So how are the dead raised? Paul is saying, by the power of God, the same power that inspired the Old Testament. But Paul doesn't stop there. He has a second proof that he wants us to uh, take note of. That is, eyewitnesses. We go back to 1 Corinthians 15. If you look in verses 4 and, and, and following, Paul writes that he, Jesus, was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Then in verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Not only did Jesus' resurrection happen according to the scriptures, which should be enough for you to recognize and believe it, Paul says, but it did not happen hidden in a corner. All kinds of people saw Jesus. Most of them are still alive. This is Paul speaking. Most of them are still alive. You want to know the truth? Start asking around. Cephas, which is uh, Peter's name in Aramaic, so Peter, Peter, James, 500 brethren, and that 500 number probably only refers to, to men, so likely there were a 1,000 or more people. Peter, James, and a 1,000 others saw Jesus. Now, that fact that, that Paul mentions Peter and James is particularly and historically significant. See, Paul, Paul didn't know Jesus during Jesus' time on earth. Jesus appeared to Paul, as he says, and we just read, that uh, Jesus appeared to Paul last of all as to one untimely born. And most of you, I trust, know the story, the Damascus Road encounter when Jesus appeared to Paul. Paul recounts the events in Acts in a couple of different places, chapters 9, chapters 22, where we read that Paul was breathing threats, of, threats and murder against the followers of Jesus. Paul wasn't always a Jesus follower. See, Paul was on his way to round up Jesus followers, to round up Christians whom he considered heretics, to bring them under arrest back to Jerusalem for trial and punishment. But, as we read, Jesus came to him. A light flashed from heaven, and Paul fell to the ground, and he heard Jesus say, Why are you persecuting me? That light, the light of Jesus, blinded Paul, but the encounter had opened Paul's spiritual eyes. God sent a Jesus follower named Ananias to lay his hands on Paul and pray for him that his sight might be restored. Ananias did as God instructed, and Paul regained his sight. And within days, Paul was visiting synagogues and proclaiming, Jesus is the Son of God. And he was proving, again from the Scriptures, he was proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So instead of arresting Jesus' followers, he was preaching and teaching the story of Jesus. But was Paul's Jesus, the Jesus that had appeared, appeared to him, that he was teaching about? Was he the Jesus who died and was buried and was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures? 
Paul is sure it is because he's encountered Jesus. But there was a key meeting between Paul and the original followers of Jesus that confirmed Paul's encounter and the things that he was preaching. And that's why I say meeting Peter and James is particularly significant. Because in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he recounts his first meeting with Peter and with James. And we read there that after that meeting, word spread that he, that is Paul, who once persecuted us, is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of Paul and his preaching. Now I wanted to take that and, and bring you back to 1 Corinthians 15. You see what it says in verse 3? <clears throat> it says, I delivered to you what I also received. I delivered to you what I also received. Now, I just told you, Paul received truth directly from Jesus. But he also received it and verified it, if you will, with Peter and James, as, as I just told you from uh, Galatians. He received the truth directly from Jesus. But Peter and James, we know they were eyewitnesses. They saw Jesus on the very day of his resurrection. And when they met, they agreed. The Jesus that they saw, indeed, was the same Jesus who appeared to Paul. This is a very important point. And that point is that there were many eyewitnesses, even a group of a thousand or so, who saw Jesus all at the same time. And these, these people were all still around, including Peter, including James. They were all still around and still testifying to what they saw. And they were living lives that had been radically changed by what they saw, much as Paul was. They were risking arrest, imprisonment, expulsion from their religious communities, beatings, sometimes even torture and death, all because they would not refuse to admit that they saw Jesus raised from the dead. So how are the dead raised? The first part of Paul's answer to us this morning is that the dead are raised by the power of Almighty God, the same power that inspired the scriptures so that, so that they predicted Jesus' resurrection, and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead so that all could see and bear witness to the things that they saw. So God did it. He performed a miracle. He raised Jesus from the dead. You might start to ask, what's that got to do with me? What difference does that make in my life? Paul's claim here is that it makes all the difference in the world. This brings us to the second link in the resurrection miracle chain, the miracle of spiritual resurrection. Paul begins talking about this miracle right at the top of the chapter. We'll go back to verse 1. And he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, the gospel which I preached to you. The word gospel is how we translate what Paul originally wrote in the Greek which is euangelion. It literally means good message. The word, we, the word we use today, it comes out of Old English when it was translated good spell, which means good story. And today, a good literal translation would really be good news. David told us about the good news early this morning at our early service. Sometimes we lose that, that meaning, true meaning, when we say gospel. But this is what it means, the good news. What Paul is saying here with the word gospel is, he says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. What Paul is saying is, I have good news for you. I want to announce to you something awesome. And what is so awesome about the news? Well, verse 2 tells us. Verse 2 tells us if you receive this news, you are saved. Key word there, you are saved. 
What exactly is the news? Paul goes on to tell the good story, the gospel, in verses 3 and 4. That Christ died for our sins, another key word, died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The good news is simply this, that Jesus died for your sins and that you can be saved. Sins and saved. I want to take a look at these two key words. First, saved. You need to be saved. The implication is that before we can understand the good news, we need to understand that there's some bad news. David reminded us of that as well this morning. The bad news is sin. That's the second key word. We can't begin to understand the gospel message until we confront our sin. Christ died for our sins, Paul says, according to the scriptures. Sin, the Greek word comes from two words put together, meaning not and the share or or the portion. Not the share, not the portion. It was used regularly to describe an archer who lost his share in the prize, who lost his share of the portion because he missed the bullseye, he missed the mark. Maybe you've heard that before, sin is missing the mark. We all miss the mark. In fact, we can't help it. We say it all the time. We say things like, everyone makes mistakes, nobody's perfect, I couldn't help myself, I'm only human. We say these things to minimize our faults and our failures. The trouble is, all of us fail. All of us sin. At our worst, we sin deliberately. We're flat-out disobedient. We lie to save face or gain approval. We give someone a piece of our mind. We dwell on a wrong suffered and grow bitter. We let our eyes linger on an inappropriate image. Even when we try our best, we sin inadvertently. We make mistakes. We unwittingly use a kind tone of voice or unkind word. We unknowingly cut someone off in traffic, maybe cause an accident. We spread false information because we don't understand what we're talking about. All of us miss the mark every day in multiple ways. We miss the mark, and so we forfeit the prize. When an archer forfeits the prize, he might be disappointed, but he knows he can go back to the practice field, work on his skills, make improvements, compete again. Maybe one day he'll win. In real life, the Bible tells us that we can't solve our sin problem by practice. We can't solve our sin problem by moral resolve or a 12-step program. It's not to say that we can't improve our behavior. That's not the issue. The issue is that you can't erase your record of sin, and it's even worse than that because your very nature is sinful. Even if you improve your behavior, you will always have tendencies and desires and blind spots that will lead you to miss the mark time and time again. The Bible has a name for being in this situation, for being in this condition of having failed and being assured of future failure, of being disobedient and being assured of future disobedience, of being a lawbreaker. The Bible calls it being dead. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Apart from Jesus' intervention, we are all dead. Now that's not physically dead, but spiritually dead. Last I checked, dead people aren't capable of doing a whole lot. Certainly not capable of coming back to life. A spiritually dead person 
and that's all of us in our natural state, is not capable of fixing their sin problem or the sinful condition of their heart. And worse, because of our sin, the Bible tells us that we deserve the wrath of God. The Bible says that the wrath of God will come upon sons of disobedience. Dead. Wrath. These are scary words. That's the bad news. How are the spiritually dead raised? How are they condemned, saved from the wrath of God? Paul is telling us right here, it's a miracle of God based on the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the good news. And it's right here in 1 Corinthians 15. We've already read it in verse 3 that Jesus died for our sins. He died for our sins so that those who receive the good news, the gospel, that's verse 1, though they are dead, they can stand, that's in verse 1, and though they are condemned, they can be saved, that's in verse 2, from the wrath of God. And this is a miracle of God. Paul knows that it's a miracle because Paul was in the same place. Paul was dead and under wrath. And check out what what he says in verses 9 and 10 of our text this morning. He says, I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because because I persecuted the church of God. And here's this amazing statement. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul was dead spiritually when he was chasing down believers and working to spread the news. (coughs) He was chasing down the believers who were working to spread the news about Jesus. But God made him alive. God saved him. And how did he do it? How did Paul come to spiritual life? You notice what Paul said, by the grace of God, by the grace of God I am what I am, in verse 10. This is the miracle of spiritual resurrection. And how does it happen? It's all of grace. Grace means unmerited favor, an unearned gift. Ephesians 2 tells us we are dead in our sin. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, as we read. But it goes on to say, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Only the power of God, the miraculous resurrection power of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, can raise the spiritually dead to spiritual life. And so salvation, being saved from God's wrath, redemption from the consequences of our sins, has to be a gift from God. And that gift, the extension of God's grace to us, is made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, the first link in our chain. Jesus told us this. Jesus said, because I live, in John 14, he said, because I live, you will live also. And he said, I and the resurrection, and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And to that he adds, do you believe this? And truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Do you believe this? 
Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? If you don't, you are still in your sins and the wrath of God abides on you. That's the bad news. But if you do believe, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, you've received God's free gift of forgiveness of sins through Jesus' death on your behalf and you've received eternal life. You've received the miracle of spiritual resurrection. The third link in the chain is the miracle of bodily resurrection. How are the dead raised? Jesus' resurrection is the foundation, the critical link in the chain. Jesus' resurrection makes possible our spiritual rebirth, the resurrection of the spiritually dead to spiritual new life. That spiritual resurrection leads to this third link in the resurrection miracle chain, the bodily resurrection of believers. Paul tells us that the spiritually resurrected will also be bodily resurrected. In verse 50, 1 Corinthians 15, we read, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. This is such, such a beautiful statement. I hesitate even to say anything about it. I don't want to tarnish it with my own, my own words. But we are here to rejoice in the good news of God. So we need to talk about it a little bit. <clears throat> How are the dead raised? The dead are raised, Paul tells us, one, imperishable, and two, in victory. Paul says he's telling us a mystery here. He doesn't mean there's something hidden that no one understands. What he means is what I'm about to tell you is something that heretofore you didn't understand, but I'm revealing it to you now. I tell you a mystery. So we should pay careful attention to what he tells us. He tells us that we will all be changed. Indeed, we need to be changed. We all know we are perishable creatures. For most of us, I think we don't really start believing this until we hit 30-something years old. <clears throat> Before then, generally speaking, we're healthy. Even when we're not healthy, we bounce back from injuries or sickness pretty quickly. But eventually, eventually we start to notice that we're getting a little less elastic. We don't bounce so good anymore. Instead of a couple days, it takes us a couple weeks to bounce back from a cold. Sometimes it's hard even to bounce back from lying down for too long. The old bones, they do an awful lot of creaking and groaning when it's time to rise and shine. And then, then the parts start wearing out. The skin, the hair, the eyes, the ears, the arteries. It wrinkles, it turns gray, it fogs over, it clogs up, it gets weak. I'm not being pessimistic, I'm telling the truth. 
we all know it. We have a shelf life. We are perishable. And sooner or later, we return to dust, the dust from which we came. We are not made of the stuff of eternity. As Paul says it in verse 50 there, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But the wonder of God's supernatural work is that he does not leave us as dust. He changes us, verse 51. What gets old and dies will be changed into something that does not age and cannot die. As Paul says in verse 42, it is sown a perishable body. It is put into the ground a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is put into the ground in weakness. It is raised in power. We are changed. And we are given victory over death. The natural course of things is that death has the victory. Not only do we grow old and die, but death has victory over us in eternity as well if we are not in Jesus. You see what Paul says in verse 56? He says, the sting of death is sin. What does he mean by that? The sting of death is sin. Well, he's going back to the bad news again. If you don't believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you've denied the first link in the resurrection miracle chain, the miracle of Jesus' resurrection. If you deny that first link, then you are deprived of the second link, the miracle of spiritual resurrection. And if you die physically without being spiritually resurrected, then you die with your sins still on the books in biblical terms, still on your account. And at the final judgment, as the book of Revelation tells us, the dead, the great and the small, will stand before God's throne and the books will be opened and the book of life will be opened and the dead will be judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The sobering truth is that if we die with sins in the books and our names not written in the book of life, we die without confessing Jesus as Lord and believing in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we are thrown into the lake of fire. The sting of death is the sin still on the books, still on our, our account. But what a difference if Jesus has paid the debt on our account. As Paul says back to verse 3, Jesus died for our sins. And he also writes in 2 Corinthians, as well, another letter to the Corinthians, he writes in, in uh, 5, verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sins are taken by Jesus. And because our sins are taken by him, and his righteousness then is given to us, death has no power over us. No sin on our accounts. No sin on the books means no sting in death. And so, if we believe, if we confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, we can say along with Paul, O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an awesome, awesome thing. We sang it this morning. Death is swallowed up in victory. 
Death is swallowed up in victory and we are changed into heavenly, imperishable, glorified beings. How are the dead raised? They are raised imperishable and they are raised in victory. This is an amazing miracle of God. It's an amazing gift of God and it is a holy, undeserved gift. As we've already mentioned, a gift given freely by his grace and through faith. Well, we've reached the last link on our chain. I'm calling it the miracle of resurrected living or the miracle of living in the light of the resurrection. What I mean by this link is that for those who have been spiritually resurrected, there is now a new way of living. There are some very profound but also very practical implications of the truth of the resurrection. We've talked about God's power to do miracles. And we talked about the miracle chain, just to recapitulate. The first link is the miracle of Jesus' resurrection. The second link is the miracle of our spiritual resurrection. The third is the miracle of bodily resurrection. And these three build an argument. It's a logical progression. Starting with the first. If Christ has been raised bodily, then he was who he said he was. That means he did what he said he did. Namely, he died for our sins. That means those who believe are spiritually brought to life, made new creatures in Christ. That means they will be saved from the wrath to come, imperishable and victorious over death. That means they will be given imperishable spiritual bodies and will walk in streets of gold in the presence of and light of God for all eternity. These truths give us an awesomely bright outlook on the future. But the future is not Paul's sole focus here and it shouldn't be ours. Paul clearly tells us that the bright light of our future shines not only for all eternity t- toward the future, but it shines back into our often dark daily grind. The promises of tomorrow change us here and now, and they should change our outlook and behavior in the here and now. Because the dead have been raised, Paul contends. Because, because the dead are raised, Paul contends. Life has eternal significance. What we do in the here and now is relevant to the there and future. Therefore, the resurrected ones, that is, Christians, two points, the resurrected ones find their motivation is in Christ and they find their encouragement is in Christ. You see what Paul says beginning in verse 20. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. That's resurrection miracle chain link one. Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Then verse 22, in Christ, all will be made alive. That's resurrection, miracle, chain, link two. All will be made alive. But each in its own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. That's resurrection, miracle, chain, link three. And we see the, th- the three links there. And then Paul goes on. Okay, so he, he kind of lays out the, the landscape there. And he goes on down, I'm going to skip down to verse 29, where you see the word, in, in my translation anyway, <clears throat> it says otherwise. Okay, so he lays out the first uh, three links of the chain, and he says, this is all true. Otherwise. The word otherwise is a pivot. All these things above that I've said, Paul is saying, these are all true. Otherwise, or in other words, if they were not true, 
Look what it says in verse 30. If they were not true, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boast in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Here Paul has laid out what he'd say are the only two logical responses to the message that he's preaching about resurrection. Two, resp- two possible responses. One, you put your trust in Jesus and believe in the resurrection miracle chain, and you live your life in Christ, a life of purposeful struggle against evil and for the good. Or two, you reject Jesus and you abandon all purpose and have no reason to struggle for anything but really your own comfort or your own benefit or enjoyment. Let's look at that second option first. Paul's argument is a reductio ad absurdum, an an argument that attempts to disprove a position by showing that when it's taken to its limit, it inevitably leads to a ridiculous or absurd conclusion. If the dead are not raised, Paul contends, if you think about it long enough, if you work out that belief, that worldview to its ultimate end, you will come to the conclusion that nothing really matters but enjoying the time you've got while you've got it. So eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. The thinking would go something like this. If there's nothing beyond this life, why should I bother to tell people the good news about Jesus? After all, it's not truly good news, is it? That's obvious, right? But it's worse than that. If there are no lasting consequences for me or anybody else, if there's no afterlife, if no one's going to heaven and no one's going to hell, why should I be concerned with choosing right over wrong? except where it might make me uncomfortable. In fact, I might as well redefine what's right and what's wrong according to what works, uh, what works for me or what I perceive to work for my benefit. Why should I have children? Why should I build a business? Why be an upstanding member of the community? Well, I would do these things according to what I see fit, according to what I judge to be right. And the ultimate standard would be my comfort or my s- sense of self-satisfaction or my ambition, or my own sense of morality. That's what Paul is saying by eat and drink. And this is what Paul calls human motives in verse 32. If we keep pushing this worldview to its ultimate conclusion, logically it it sets us adrift on a sea of moral relativism. And it leads easily to a host of evils. And I would argue that we see these things in American culture today. We see the breakdown of the marriage and the family, We see abortion, we see gender confusion, we see suicide, racism, road rage, drug and alcohol addiction, pornography, financial frauds, government corruption, you name it. These are all complicated issues and they do form an interconnected web of societal evils. I'm not trying to say they're easily overcome, but what is clear is that at the core of these, somewhere along the line, someone has said, I'm gonna do what seems like to me would benefit me the most. And if the dead are not raised, who's to argue that they should have chosen otherwise? But if the dead are raised, everything's changed. The calculus completely changes. For Paul, his life is lived in Christ. He is motivated by Christ. He's motivated by Christ in two senses of that word, motivate. Glorifying, pleasing, and serving Christ motivates all that he does. And the spirit of Christ in him 
the new life that Christ lives in him motivates him or empowers him to do what Christ has called him to do. If you put your trust in Jesus, it changes everything. It means no longer living for yourself. It means no longer living by your own strength. But you are living in service to Christ by the power of Christ's strength in you. You're no longer... Uh, <clears throat> of no longer living for himself. Paul speaks in verse 31. He calls it dying daily. No longer living for himself. He's dying daily. And of living by the power of Christ... Paul can say of his labors in verse 10 that it is not he who labors, as we read, but it's the grace of God with him that labors. I think Paul really kind of wraps it up in a nice package in Galatians 2, verse 20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. If you know that the dead are raised, there's a reason to live for others. Paul, Paul traveled around the world to preach and teach the good news because he knew that people are either going to be swallowed up in death or see death swallowed up in victory. And Paul clearly wanted to see people have the victory over death through the Lord Jesus. When Paul says he battled wild beasts at Ephesus in verse 32, He's referring to those who opposed his teaching there. He was opposed by Jews there who rejected Jesus. He was also opposed by the pagans who worshipped Artemis, the Greek goddess. Some of you may recall the story about how the craftsmen of Ephesus raised a near riot because Paul's teaching was taking people away from worshipping the idols that they produced. And so Paul was endangering their livelihood. And we know that Paul faced more than religious and societal opposition and near riots. In 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, Paul recounts, he was beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times he received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. In dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers from the city, dangers in the wilderness. Why did he do it? He did it for Christ, and he did it by the power of Christ in him. He desired to have every aspect of his life, every thought, every action, every motive, to be by Christ and for Christ. He had a life of true purpose, a life of true meaning, true significance, because he lived it in the light of eternity. He lived it in the light of the resurrection. And this only makes sense if, in fact, the dead are raised. Are you there, brothers and sisters? What motivates you? The truth of the resurrection and the light of eternity? Or eat, drink, for tomorrow we die? Be careful how you answer that question. Because the eat, drink, eat and drink, it's very insidious. It's really at the core of our fallen human nature. And it permeates our culture as well. And as Paul bore witness to, Life in the light of the resurrection is not easy. It's difficult. It's a struggle. In fact, it can be downright hazardous. So I want to leave you with the encouragement that Paul leaves us all with at the end of the chapter. In verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, 
immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Because the dead are raised, take courage, Paul says. Don't doubt. Don't, fall, don't, uh, sorry, don't fail to trust in Jesus and his word. Keep on serving him because you know that what you do in him, what he does in and through you, has eternal consequences. Your work in the Lord will be met with one day the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Your work in the Lord will bring, will bring glory and honor to the king of the universe. A Christian does not live as those who have no hope in eternity. A Christian does not face the struggles of life without the comfort of eternity. Because Christians know that the dead are raised. And we know how the dead are raised. The dead are raised by the power of God. Christ has been risen from the dead. He has raised us from the dead. He will raise us in victory over death forevermore. And so we live life now in the light of the resurrection. Let me just say one more time. How are the dead raised? They are raised in Christ. They are raised spiritually. They are raised bodily. They are raised to a life of purpose, of meaning and hope. So this morning we rejoice. Because he lives, we have life. He is risen. Let's try it again. He is risen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you for these truths this morning from your word. We thank you that you raised Jesus from the dead. We thank you that because you raised Jesus from the dead, you can raise us from, from our spiritual death. And we thank you that we can look forward to one day being given those imperishable bodies and being raised bodily from the dead. Father, as we reflect on these glorious truths that they are all a free gift, all given by your grace. Father, we also confess to you this morning that we don't always live in the light of those truths. We often are taken over by human motives. Father, for those here who have not confessed Jesus as Lord and do not believe that you raised him from the dead, I pray that your spirit would convict them of these truths, that your spirit would drive them to your word, to examine these truths, to weigh them. And beyond all that, I pray that your spirit would give them the new birth, give them eyes to see and ears to hear. For those of us who know you, Lord, for those of us who have confessed you as Lord, fill us with your spirit, Lord, that we might live life not by human motives, but we might live truly in Christ, that we may be able to say along with Paul, we are crucified with Christ, and it was no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And make us bold, make us bold to teach and to preach the good news of Jesus risen from the dead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.